0: You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit CAC.org. For
1: me, I would say that love is realizing my own oneness with the whole. And out of that sense of oneness and unity, wanting the best. And doing what I can to advance that the best for for the whole. I think I'm at my best at this when I'm doing spiritual direction. If that's what's behind what I'm doing is wanting the best, then it's easier for me to get out of the way. And when I get out of the way, I'm listening to the whole, and allowing the whole to to move and speak and and act through me. And that to me is the way I practice love. It's hard to say what love is, Um, it's easier to see love's effects. But that's, for me, is the best way I can practice love is to get out of the way and allow that love to to work through me.
2: This podcast explores the mystery of relatedness as an organizing principle of the universe and of our lives. We're trying to
3: catch a glimpse of connections beyond color, continent, country, or kinship. And we're going to do this through science, mysticism, spirituality, and the creative arts. I'm Donnie Bryant. I'm Barbara Holmes. And this is The Cosmic We. Today, we're going to be talking with one of the women who makes the CAC Living School a joy for both students and teachers. Now, I'm going to let her introduce herself but I do want to briefly share how we know one another. I know her as a wise spiritual teacher, steeped in grounded practices that she shares with the community. We invited Gigi to share with us today because we're all on a path of discovery and growth. The life journey is often so intense that we seldom look up or at our neighbors to get a sense of how they're progressing. And I'm convinced we were never meant to travel alone. The companionship that we get just from hearing the stories of those also on the journey inspire us and help us to carry on when the going gets rough. Welcome, Gigi. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what brings you to this point in your life?
1: I guess I'll start when I was... um a child. Uh, I remember just being interested in um, spiritual things. And when I was eight years old, I was in the library and I saw this, I was one of those people who wanted to like know everything. And so I figured that I could, I figured that I could read every single book in the library, (laughs) you know? And so I I started, it was a Dewey Decimal System time. So I was in the 200s and there was this book called Religions of the World. Um, It was in the kids' library. I opened it up, and there was this photo of this Hindu monkey meditation, and when I saw it, I felt like I was coming home. Um, And so that got me on this interest into all kinds of spirituality. Um, The thing is, I grew up in the national, my parents and I, we all went to the church in the National Baptist Convention. And um, so me studying religions of the world was not something that they would have been overjoyed with it if they had known that that was what I was doing. Um, but they never, they never checked what I read. They were just happy that I was reading. Um, and so I just, from that time on, just was just interested. And most of the, the kind of contemplative spirituality things that I could find at that time, this was in the 70s, it was Eastern. So I did a lot of looking over at the you know, yoga and transcend, transcendental meditation. And all I could do as a kid was books. I would just try to try on my own you know, what they were, what they were doing. And so that, that kind of had stayed with me for basically all my life. Um, we'll fast forward to me moving to DC to practice law, which actually didn't last very long. Um, I was by mutual consent, we decided that I wasn't good. And and they said, okay, I'll go if if you don't fire me. So that's kind of what happened. Um, but it got me to DC and my way of, um, figuring out communities in D.C. was to look for where the contemplative spirituality was. Um, and there was a lot of programs happening at the National Cathedral. So my church at that time was the Teze Services at the National Cathedral. I loved it because there was no sermon. There was just silence. And so right, right. That, was, that was great not to have to hear a lot of things and lots of singing. Um, so that was, that was really, really good. And then eventually I stumbled into Centering Prayer. I had been reading about it, but didn't want to practice it without a, like a person to guide me. And so they had one of these introductory workshops. And I think somebody that you know, I know you know him, Dr. B. I don't know if Donnie, you know, but a guy named Gene Sutton was leading um, leading that particular workshop. And that got me into centering prayer. And that got me into eventually being on the leadership team in the DC Contemplative Outreach chapter. Um, at that time, I was also... Studying to be a spiritual director, became a spiritual director, and was working um, for an organization called the Shalem Institute for Spiritual Formation, where I did some of what I'm, I'm doing now. I was basically the assistant, I ended up being the assistant director of their spiritual guidance program. But then, shortly after that, we're talking 2008, um, they cut the budget and therefore they cut my position. Um, this was right before the Great Recession. Wow. And um, a year later, I ran out of money. Okay. Let's pause there. Okay, Let's
3: pause there, Gigi, (laughs) because this is so packed. (laughs) I mean, I'm back at where you said you opened up a book, you saw Tibetan monks, and you were at home. How do you jump from Baptist to home with Tibetan Buddhist monks? I mean, I was a library geek too, and I know the world's had opened up. What gave you a sense of home, and what did that mean to you?
1: I'll back up a little, a few years earlier. I think it was when I was four, but maybe it was when I was six. Um, I learned how to read when I was four, but I remember reading the Bible. I had one of those King James versions where Jesus' um, words were in red, and just really, really reading it and taking it. And something in me told me that, you know, this is a, there's a lot of deep stuff here, and the adults at the church can't show it to me because they don't they don't know. Um, and so there was just something there, you know, Um Always something there that was just looking for some kind of way into that deep place. Um, so that's I think that's how how I got to the to feeling home. It just felt right when I saw that picture.
3: You had an instinctive knowledge that formal uh, the formal kind of religion that you've been exposed to just didn't have the roots, didn't have the depth, couldn't take you where you were going. Um, the other interesting thing you talked about is your short career as an attorney. Now we we were both attorneys. <laughs> Um,
1: you lasted way longer <laughs> than I did that. <laughs>
3: <laughs> but that was just because I was hanging on by my fingernails. <laughs> I just I thought contemplatives, you know they also have to eat. And how do contemplatives make money? <laughs> and so I thought, okay, if I just get good at this lawyer thing, even though it's like scratching nails on blackboard for me, um, I can't stand it. but if I just get better at it, maybe I'll like it more. And it never happened that I liked it more. I tried every kind of law there was. I hated each more than the last. And finally, thank God, the law firm I was in closed down. As it turns turns out that, you know, trial lawyers don't just fight in trial or in court. They fight with each other, too. And so the the whole firm imploded. And I went home to my mom. And I also didn't have a job. So there you are. (laughs) Our paths are not that different. So now you're a spiritual director and you've you've taken this other path and suddenly you have this experience of not being employed. And you talk about it as letting go. Uh, The Greek word for that is kenosis. Tell us how you define kenosis.
1: You know, it comes from that that hymn in Philippians, and it's Jesus letting go of his identity as divine and taking on a human human form, and then he lets that go, and it's back to the vine. So this idea of self-emptying, of not hanging on, so it's it's really more about not hanging on, um, I would say. So because things come your way, and you and I am by no means a master at this, but the tendency is to sort of if something's really good, you want to hold on to it. But kenosis is just let it, allowing it to go. Um, that's how I think of it. It's just, just like open up your hands and just allowing it, allowing it to go.
3: Even the good things.
1: Yeah, because um, as I met some, I, can, I wish I can remember who, but someone recently talked about how if you have something in your hand and you and you don't open it up, you can't get what's coming up next. You know, so oh, even the good things. Yeah. yeah.
3: So this experience was an emptying time for you. And this is the way you put it. You said, kenosis came to me unbidden when you lost your job in 2008 and ran out of money a year later. So how did you survive?
1: I was fortunate enough, you know, that they say Teresa Vavla says that God has no hands and feet but ours. I had a community that really took care of me. Some of them took me in at different times. Some of them found people who wanted people to house sit. I spent about 20 months um, in exchange for a room, helping a, an older activist stay independent. She was in her 80s and on the verge of dementia. Um, so I just, you know, took whatever came. And sometimes it didn't come till the 11th hour and 59th minute. And I was pretty sure I was going to be out on the street, but it never happened.
2: Gigi, you know... You came to this experience of kenosis or gentle release or letting go through through life's journey through the realities of life. Um, but for for those who may be interested in becoming more familiar, becoming more intimate with the art of kenosis or the the reality of kenosis, is there a way that you can help our listeners to to maybe practice kenosis? Or are there some some nuggets of wisdom that you can offer through your own life experience that that our listeners, if they're interested in becoming more practitioners of the art of letting go or the self-emptying as as some define kenosis.
1: Yeah, I can think of a few things. And I I mean, I think when it comes to practice, start small um, and start easy. So I wouldn't start with something that you really, really love and don't want to let go of. Um, But, you know, there may be some things, you know, like, for example, um, maybe there's someone like me and Dr. B, I don't know, maybe you too, Donnie, we have lots of books, you know, so what if, you know, you looked at your bookshelf and said, oh, I can let this book go, or I can let this book go, or, you know, if, if you are on, (laughs) Dr. B said, no, I can't.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Those are my children.
1: (laughs) Or these things that we do like fast, you know, like the people take data Sabbaths, like they say, oh, I'm going to spend one hour a week less on my phone, you know, and let go that way. Just find little, little things that won't cost you a lot, but there's something that you really like. So there is something that you normally would not let go of. Um, that's that's one that's one way I can think of, of um, as a practice of doing that.
2: No, oh, that's powerful. I, I think you really... There's a story in the Torah about Abraham who was giving a an assignment by God to offer up his his only son, his beloved son. And that narrative, that story of Abraham's journey to the mountaintop and laying down the altar and you know, getting the fire and I think that story gives us some insight into the the struggle of of letting go, right? It's oftentimes the thing that you love the most that you have the most difficult time of releasing and relinquishing or self emptying. And that narrative, um, I, I remember, Gigi, I had an, a, an experience several years ago where I had to come to the reality of letting go uh, of, a, of, a, of a relationship that I really was holding on to, right? And that was something that was really important to me. And this concept of self-emptying uh, or surrender, I, I think a, a word that I, I really became more familiar with was surrender, right? And kenosis is really uh, a surrendering to what is, a surrendering to your fears, a surrendering to the reality that you're trying to control, Um Dr. B, last week we talked about certitude, right? That word, or a couple weeks ago, certitude, right? A surrendering, a letting go of your truth of what you believe is right, or what you believe it, you know, has to be. And so, uh, I, I thank you for that because um, even some of your work, uh, I think you wrote a, wrote a piece on love and kenosis. Can you speak to the juxtaposition of love and kenosis and how they're interrelated or correlated? That's interesting because as you were talking about
1: surrender, I was thinking that surrender could only happen in love. And that piece that you're referring to, um, I talk about the commandments that Jesus has. You know that there are two commandments. You know, loving God with all of who you are, and loving your neighbor as yourself. Many spiritual traditions talk about love as an act of will, something it's an action, it's not an emotion, it's something that you do. Um, and so, for me, I would say that love, at, it's best for me is, number one, realizing my own oneness with the whole. And out of that sense of oneness and unity, wanting the best. And doing what I can to, to just advance that, the best for, for the whole. Um, and so that can sound abstract. I think I'm at my best at this when I'm doing spiritual direction. Um, if that's what's behind what I'm doing is wanting the best, then it's easier for me to get out of the way. And when I get out of the way, I'm listening to the whole and allowing the whole to, to move and speak and, and, and act through me. And that, to me, is the way I practice love. It's hard to say what love is. Um, it's easier to see love's effects. But that's for me, is the best way I can practice love is in, to get out of the way and allow that love to, to work through me.
3: You know, um, as we reflect back on those times and, and your experience, Um, It seems like, you know, almost like a spiritual practice. But at the time that it was happening, um, you said it came tasting like betrayal, like a setup. Who was
1: betraying you? Who was setting you up? Well, I was was on this path, you know, thinking I was doing exactly what I was called to do. And I'm going to say I, I did have advanced warning because about three or four months before I was told that my position was being cut. I heard this voice because I was, was, at this time, I was looking at a program on interspiritual wisdom. It only happened once because they couldn't afford to do it again. But it was was a program focused on practices of the five major religions. So Hinduism, Buddhism, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. And so when I was applying for that, looking at that, this voice said, you know, you know, you might want to apply for this because You may not be at at Chalet much longer. You might want something to fall back on. And there was nothing in the air at all saying that that was going to happen. But even when it did happen, it just felt like here I was doing what I felt I was called to do. Here I was doing what I was using my best gifts. And all of a sudden, it's not there anymore. Another funny thing is, is that a few months later, someone told me about a job to be an assistant, or no, to be a director of a spiritual direction program at another place, and my body would not let me apply. So as much as I wanted to apply, I couldn't. And so, so I didn't. And so there I was. And then I ended up being, you know, without a job for seven years and homeless for six years. So, You
3: mentioned um, when you were telling your story that you stayed for a while with an aging activist. Uh, and you talked about the challenges of helping her, and a lot of our listeners can relate to that because they're they're caring for aging relatives, and they understand how difficult it is. You talk about an argument you had with her that exposed the anger inside of you. Talk about how that that happened and how that exposure changed everything for you.
1: Basically, I theoretically had one day when I didn't have to clean or do anything. Um, and so one of those days, I can't remember if, if it was a cat, if the cat threw up or if something else happened. And it was up to me to clean it. And I was just not happy about that. And obviously when I was angry, it was, probably, it was because other things were, were piling up inside of me. It wasn't just that one particular incident. Um, you know, we talk about letting go, but letting go isn't easy. And I didn't wasn't always grace, gracious and graceful when I was letting go. And there were many times when I was just, like angry. This was probably maybe about three years into my being homeless, so this is probably around 2012 or maybe 2013. Um, and so it was. And this has happened. It wasn't the first time this has happened. It had happened before. And so at some point, I guess I it was one of those last straw things. And to this day, I still don't remember what I said, <laughs> um, <laughs> but I remember how it felt. And I and I know what I said. I said something that was really meant to hurt her, and it did hurt her really badly. Um, and I remember, um, going, going back and I felt bad too. I, you know, it's funny. It's like, you think you're going to feel better when you let things go and explode, but I have yet to feel better when I exploded somebody after we, we talked about it. I made a promise, you know, it's, I said that I would never take that out on her. I take it out on God. Cause God can, you know, God can take anything but i was not going to take it out on any other person my frustration at cuz in some ways it felt like being stuck because here i am someone who actually has a decent education you'd think it would be easy for me to get a job um but it wasn't and so there was a lot of my own frustration um you know 3 years in i'm still in this place and i have no idea how it's going to end i figured I, i'll i'll just do you know um Donna, you talked about the torah I'll, I'll in the in the in the jewish tradition i'll just yell at god um and so It was just not feeling good about myself as well as not wanting to hurt somebody and 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 seeing that I did and just deciding, okay. Uh, And so I never, I really, I didn't get angry at her or I had a neighbor who the in the bedroom where I was staying, the wall was next to the neighbor's house and every night her television was up really, really loud. It was really hard to go to sleep. But I wasn't going to tell her not to turn her television down because I figured she was hard of hearing and it just wouldn't make sense. So there was was actually a lot of... um, just a lot of discomfort um, in those 20 months. Um, But I learned to take my frustration to God and not take it out on other people.
3: Is that how you handle anger these days? Is is it still a matter of turning toward the divine? Um, You know, what are your practices when things just build up so much that an explosion is almost inevitable? What do you do then?
1: I hope I've gotten to the place where they don't build up that I find those trigger points before they get to that place. Um, I, I One of the things I think that my contemplative practice has helped me with, and in, the, in recent years, this got even better, um, but I also remember the first time it happened, and I'll, I'll say that one first. I was working, actually working at Shalame and was angry at a colleague, and but instead of saying something, I think because of my contemplative practice, it was the space. Because usually often when we're angry, we don't have, there's no time. He's just, just comes out. But I think with, with, at least for what I can tell with contemplative practice, that you can sometimes be gifted with this, this um, opportunity to have a space and you can make a choice. And I remember the first time that happened that I could actually see the anger coming up from behind my head and I made a choice and it went right back down. And so I didn't get angry. And so most of the time that happens, um, and there was also a time, and just to um, do the, the opposite, where I did have that space, but I was so hurt, I went for it anyway, and I rejected, and I, I really felt bad. But these days, I most of what I do is, I can my body lets me know, you know, if I'm contracting or tight or something, that means there's something I need to be paying attention to. And so I, I sit, you know, I go go to when I guess make some, I make an appointment with myself, and I, I sit with it with God. And we just look at it. And sometimes what I need happens then. Sometimes it takes a few times. And recently there was, it was in the shower when I finally figured out what the, the trigger, really, really deep trigger was that I need to pay attention to. And so if, I feel like if I do that, it doesn't get to that place where, where I explode.
2: Wow. You know, Gigi, as you're talking about uh, your, your experience and your handling emotions, I was reminded of a sermon by, by Jesus in Matthew Um, the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, um, there's a particular lesson he he teaches us and he says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And as you were describing the process of self-emptying or your process of of not, not allowing your anger or your emotions to control you, one way of interpreting that particular lesson is blessed are the poor in spirit, poor. In other words, those who relinquish themselves from the control of their emotions or, or those who self-empty, poor meaning to just be to be to release, if you will, uh, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, there was a certain level of connectivity that you described with your fellow people around you, the people who may have triggered you. There was a certain aspect of love and oneness Uh, In seeing yourself in them. And I think that describes, that beatitude does in some way describe what you were describing, um, a way of experiencing the true power of the kingdom of heaven on earth or the divine in humanity. So in some of your work, you write about that. That's to me, even a a better description of how you describe your love and the flow of love with, um, you know, with kenosis. So are there other ways outside of anger that you can help us to to be able to practice this level of seeing and in, in being with uh, with with the practice of kenosis? Are there other ways that you can help us to see that without, you know, outside of anger? Or maybe there are other emotions like fear, for example. Many of us struggle with that.
1: One of the things, I, there are two things that come to my mind. One is what is the spiritual path and what are our invitations to the spiritual path? And um, one of the the roles I think of suffering and discomfort is an invitation to the spiritual path because you can't really be on the spiritual path if you are not ready to open yourself up for discomfort, open yourself up to have your world turned upside down. I think there's a, sort of like a basic spiritual practice and that is to turn toward whatever it is. So just as I turn toward anger and turn toward fear and fear. I have a thing with fear too. And sometimes I I, I just decide it's not worth it. I'll just have to, I just won't do what I'm afraid of. But there are other times, you know, when I I need to really look at what is happening. And I I think that when I'm afraid, it means that there's something about not trusting God that's happening for me. And so that's where I turn my attention to is to look at, you know, where am I having those issues of trust? And the love also comes in is because I don't beat myself up for being afraid or not trusting. It's just the way it is. And how am I going to grow if if I don't do some things that need to have, that need to grow with? So that for me, that that's the first thing is to just acknowledge and not resist. Because often my, I mean, this is my, my my reflex is if I'm afraid, I'm going to try not to be afraid. Um, And that just seems to make things worse. And so to just actually acknowledge um, and then take that time to be with it. and I find that the less I resist, the more I welcome it in, the smaller it seems to get. And then just acknowledge that that's a part of, of who I am. I, I went on a, a retreat this past September and ever since then this the parable of Jesus's wheat and tares, weed and the wheat weeds and the wheat have been with me and and one way of looking that that is, that we may think of our fears as weeds, but they actually have a role and they actually have a purpose and they actually may in some ways, if we allow ourselves to look at them and listen to them um, and learn, let them teach us in some way, they may actually be more wheat than we think of. And so I think that for me is basically loving those parts of us that we would think we should get rid of and just turn toward them, welcome them, allow them to bathe in God's love as well. So for me, the practice itself is the same, even as the emotions change.
0: Is there life after doom? Explore the complexity of hope and grief at our upcoming event, Courage and Resilience, an online gathering with Brian McLaren. Unpack themes from Brian McLaren's new book, Life After Doom. Discover how to find courage, even when everything may feel hopeless. Join us live on May 17th at 10 a.m. Pacific Time. All those who register will have access to the recorded replay for one year. Register at cac.org courage. Explore art as a spiritual practice in the next issue of Wanting, the biannual journal from the Center for Action and Contemplation. Oneing, Art and Spirituality, features images and reflections from leading actors and musicians, including Scott Avett, Josh Radner, Lourdes Bernard, and more. Get your copy today at cac.org slash art. That's cac.org slash O-N-E-I-N-G-A-R-T. Have you taken an online course with the Center for Action and Contemplation? Explore the intersection of ancient wisdom and Jesus' teachings in The Divine Exchange, an online course featuring Cynthia Bourgeau. Fully embrace divine interaction each day, starting June 16th. Register today at cac.org online ed. That's cac.org O-N-L-I-N-E dash E-D.
3: You said something um, <laughs> disturbing and powerful at the very beginning. You said that this path of spiritual um, seeking is, is not going to be a rose garden. That the moment you set off in this desire to have reunion with God and peace, you're going to be on rocky ground. It, in this world, you will have trouble you know, in the words of Jesus. That's not very comforting. So, we're supposed to leave the trouble in the world
1: and get on the spiritual path so we can have trouble on the path. Is that, what we, is that what we're facing? Well, you know, Jesus talks about the broad path and the narrow path. And everybody wants to go on that broad path. You know, they, they do. Um, and, and that's actually the path that leads to trouble. Um, that narrow path is rocky and steep. It's not comfortable but it leads to life. And I think the what you learn if you actually take that in and turn and allow yourself to be taught by that discomfort is you grow deeper into the trust. You grow deeper into love. You're able to see other people as as, as your fellow siblings. Um, you're able to see them as children of God. You're able to be in solidarity with them because you have a feeling of what suffering is like. So even though there is that discomfort there you're not traveling in alone um and it's it's meant to actually take you to a place where you can become more who you are in god
3: what i find amazing is that you are able to to stand having been homeless for 6 years without income for activism that is so deeply rooted and i think don't you, that having lived marginalized, that you have a different perspective on how to deal with, approach, support folks who have long-term marginalization. Um, is that true?
1: Yeah. I remember I didn't do all the things that you do, you know, when you don't have money. Like I didn't do the what I grew up learning called food stamps. But I did um, do Medicaid. And I remember going down to the, wherever that office was and just being in line for like hours just to get, you know, and just seeing just how dehumanizing that system is. And I know it, the people there have good intentions and they're doing the best they can with that system. Um, but it's, it is just really dehumanizing. Um, and there are people who are not just doing it for Medicaid, but they're doing it for other, for trying to get food, get things for their kids and all that. And there's just so much of the way it's set up that is dehumanizing. But who would, I mean, would you really know that if you didn't actually go down there? You don't have to be homeless, you know, or you don't have to be marginalized yourself to get a feel for that. But you do have to be willing to open yourself up to places where you can see what's happening to people who are marginalized, you know, without trying to save them or tell them what to do. but to allow yourself to have to open your eyes and not close your eyes, because I mean, if you're in, a, especially if you're in a city, it's you don't. If your if your eyes are open, you're going to see the marginalization. Um, I mean, here in Albuquerque, for sure, um, you can see the marginalization of, of all kinds of people. And I know that even in smaller towns, although smaller towns in general tend to take better care of, of other people than people in cities do, um, but but the thing is you're going to see it. And and there is a correlation, I think, between our ability to love and be in solidarity with people who are marginalized. There's a correlation between that and to love and being in solidarity with the marginalized places of our own inside of us as well.
3: Yeah, I kind of think it's a blessing. I mean, I was in a similar circumstance because once I stopped practicing law, and went to seminary. I had no money. I had no job. I had medic, whatever the Medicaid was it. And it was dehumanizing. And here I am. I've been, you know, I'm attorney. I'm in school getting a PhD and I got to stand in line and be asked ridiculous questions. And what it does is it says to you, you know what, Um, all this that you think about who you are and who you're getting ready to be, it doesn't mean anything if you lose the status that the world values, that once you choose different values, it's it's a whole nother path. But I think that that experience of being with other people who were impoverished while I was in school as an adult, helped me to see that community completely differently. I no longer, when I'm working or activist on their behalf or with them, think of myself as doing anything from on high. I think of myself as temporarily not there, but could be there one one paycheck away, two paychecks away. Doesn't matter how far away you are, it can happen to you. And so you've got to love your neighbor as you want to be loved, even when you're in a better circumstance. That's wonderful, um, Gigi. This is a quote that's attributed to you. God offers us quiet contemplative eyes and God calls us to prophetic and critical involvement in the pain and sufferings of our world, both at the same time. Would you say a little bit more about that?
1: I don't think you really can have one without the other. To really be um, involved in the pain and suffering of the world and doing what you are called to do to relieve that in some way, I think you could only do that from a place of contemplation and I should, I think I should say what I mean by contemplation and contemplation is not, you know, the practices that we do. Those are, those that I think are just meant to open us up to be receptive to allowing contemplation to happen. In some ways for me, contemplation and love are synonyms Um, because the deepest part, what makes contemplation contemplation is love. And for me, contemplation is more like what we, how we perceive, our attitude to the world, our stance. Um, and it's this place of really being open and receptive to reality as it is. And there's absolutely no way you can be with anyone who is poor if you, if you don't really see them as they are. And I think a lot of times when you were talking about, you know, um, often when like, when I know I felt this too when I was um, homeless, that there's sometimes this. This people feel like they're on high and they're doing you a favor or something, you know, and that's because they're not coming from a place of contemplation. They have coming from a place where they themselves are separate from what's what is reality. But for me, you need to have both of those. And even though contemplation and, you know, lack of noise or or distraction are not synonyms, there is this kind of inner stillness that is a part of contemplation. Because without that inner stillness, you're not going to be able to see um, because there's too many things going on inside of you as well to keep you from seeing what's actually what's actually really real. So they they go together as far as I'm concerned.
3: A lot of the um, activist movements don't seem very contemplative at all. Um, the LBGTQIA movements, the Black Lives Matter movements, All of the movements for justice, you know, the immigration initiatives at the border. What do you see that's contemplative in our current social problems?
1: You know, there are pockets of activists here and there that are actually, and I'm finding it more and more. I mean, they may not, they they talk about bringing love more into what they're doing. I have to say, I don't, I'm not like a huge follower of all the things that are happening um, in the social activist world. But I do see more and more people are understanding that they have to take care of themselves. I think that's the place where contemplation, that's the opening for contemplation, is that people are, I mean, too many people have burnt out um, doing activism, and they're starting to really, really talk about taking care of themselves. And part of taking care of yourself is to really get to know yourself, and to really get to know who you are in that greater whole, whether you believe in where you call it God or whatever, we're not these separate entities. We are part of something larger. And I think that people are coming to see that if, if they're not in a place where they can take care of themselves and where they can act from that centered, authentic place, they can't do the activism. I think that's slowly coming to, into many different places. And I think the self-care is, is, has, has been one of those doors. That has allowed it to show up. How
3: do you uh, connect all of this to your African diaspora origins? I mean, how do how how do you ground this? Most of the uh, spiritual direction programs are uh, very anglicized. Um, I know because I that was what I was going to do. I was going to be uh, a spiritual practitioner and. I was studying that in seminary, and the more I studied, the less it seemed to be grounded in my culture, my people, and what their needs were. Didn't, didn't seem to make sense to me. Um, and so I stopped and, and went into ethics, where I had a broader palette that I could work with. How do you tie the two together? How do you, you know, make sure that the work that you do with your own community is grounded and what's needed for, for them?
1: Um, there, there are two sides to that question. One is my own relationship with the African-American community that I grew up in. And that relationship was really fraught because of my sexual orientation. I'm not heterosexual. And growing up in the National Baptist Convention, um, basically I was told I was going to hell. Um, and so I really felt exiled from that community. Another thing, not only did I want to read all the books in the Bible, I felt like I could listen to any radio station I wanted to. And because in Milwaukee, where I grew up, there were three black radio stations and the black people only listened to those three black radio stations. They didn't listen to me, right. but I felt that I got a whole like dial, AM, FM, I'm going to listen to the whole thing. So I think there's a part of me that has always taken wisdom wherever wherever I find it. I wasn't one of those people who had to see someone who looked like me to think that I could do something. I felt like if anybody was doing it, then I could do it. It didn't care. I didn't really, to me, it didn't matter what they looked like. I spent a lot of my time outside of the African American community because I didn't feel welcome in the one that I grew up in. It wasn't until I moved to DC and had been there for a while that I was able to find other African American communities where I was more welcome. And, you know, I think my ability to give back to the African-American community has happened organically. It's just as I have found my way back. And I don't really seem to need to do anything. I just am who I am. Because even though I didn't really ensconce myself in the African-American community that I grew up in, I'm still African-American. I can only be African-American. It's right. there in my DNA no matter what you do. Um, and so so um, I don't have a really good answer for that. It just seems to happen organically. Um, and so, as you know, I, the, I'm doing work with the BIPOC students at, at, with the Living School. And, and with, that, with that, that's, that same thing is the CAC, like most um, mainstream Christian organizations, is predominantly white. And that brings specific, um, what I call extra credit work that BIPOC students have to do. Um, And so for me, knowing that that from my own experience and having a feel for what that looks like and and, and what really is the call for BIPOC students and, and working with them to find that, you know, it just seems to just come out organically. I don't really, I can't really tell you what I did or how I do it or whatever. It just seems to, it just seems to be an outgrowth of what I do.
3: For those who don't know what BIPOC means, it's black indigenous people of color. Um, Do you think things are better now in the black community? I mean, I'm certainly aware, because I grew up during the same time period as you did that um, there was a a great aversion and a lot of uh, abuse of uh, folks who were not her- heteronormative. So, do you think that's better now in the churches or is it just more subtle? Has it gone underground, but not healed?
1: <laughs> I think it's kind of like the the country itself there there it's a spectrum. You know, there are some black churches that are still but there are a lot more who are more welcoming. There's a lot there's a lot more who are more welcoming and also as this younger generation has become adults where and they're used to having more of, especially if it's more of a diversity of sexual orientations, gender identities. Um, and so for them, it's just not a big deal for the younger younger generation. So I, I do think on the whole, it's better. Um, I think it's mostly better in cities than it is in smaller towns. And that being said, it's still... They're still i still i remember before i left dc in 2015 i could still go in the metro and, and hear kids talk about just really dissing people who were gay so you know it's a spectrum i think on the whole it's getting it's gotten better and like other other places where people are oppressed there's more work to do
3: yeah, like, like racial justice in exactly. America. Exactly,
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We've made some strides and
3: still have many more strides to yeah. go. And,
1: there's, and there yeah. seems to be a, a really big conservative push to make all of that racial, trans, gender identity, and sexual orientation to go back, you know, all of it to go back into the closet, so to speak, you know. Right. <laughs>
3: Right. Well, they're trying, um, but I don't think we're going to fit back. None of us are going to fit back in those closets anymore. (laughs) There's too many clothes in there. (laughs) We're not not going back. (laughs) You know, um, what's interesting is that uh, you have been able to become almost this ecumenical spirit um, in the midst of the most difficult times that you've had. And I love the idea that you gather your wisdom wherever it can be found. Uh, I mean, I, I've always been very interested in, in searching my DNA to find out my origins. I don't know if you've done that for yourself or not yet, or if you have any interest in it. But to be able to relate to the world as part of your family and as a source for your learning is very, very rich.
1: Another part of my story is that I was adopted. So in the family that I grew up in, they were not my, my biological parents. I did eventually meet my biological mother. We were really became really good friends um, for the, six, the last 16 years of her life. She died in 2013. I never met my father. And the one thing I know about my father is that he, he is from, assuming he's still alive, from Guinea, West Africa. So there's a whole side of myself that I don't know. Um, so I, I'm living on the on the half of, the half of myself that I, <laughs> that I do know. <laughs> that is fascinating. You know, and I, I remember when I um, met my family, I met them. They, it was the one and only time they had a family reunion in the D.C. area they had in Alexandria, Virginia. And it was kind of like a piece of the puzzle was missing because I... I found that piece of a piece of the missing puzzle because I met my mom. It was like, we're just so much alike, even though we never spent a single day together. (laughs) You know, it was just pretty (laughs) amazing to see, you know, just what that bloodline, how strong it is, even if you've never had any kind of connection before.
3: We're coming up on um, the end of the interview. And I don't want to surprise you with this, but I was going to ask you to do a closing sit. For the audience, let me just give you a little prompt. So it comes from your work. You say that um, Jesus is the example that we use to talk about love as contemplation and action. And you said that's because Jesus starts with oneness, the Shema. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. That's the first thing you start with. Then you let go of that, and you allow separateness to arise. Then you let that die, and you will let the coming together and the oneness merge again in cycles. So um, I don't know when this uh, episode is going to air, but we've just had an election. And some people are overjoyed and some people are not. And all of us are concerned about the state of the union, one way or another. And I was wondering if you could take us through a set, starting with oneness and letting go and separation and coming together based on where we are socially and politically right now. Because you have a way of taking the everyday and the ordinary and giving us the spiritual practice that resonates right to your soul. So I'm going to give you a few minutes while we just sit in quietly and let you uh, think about that, and I'll let you start whenever you feel ready. Donnie, did you have anything to, to add before we go into the set?
2: No, let's, uh, let's let this go. This has just been a, an awesome experience, and I'm so grateful for this opportunity to participate in the SIT with you, Gigi.
1: Thank you. It was nice to meet you for the first time. And thank you, Dr. B, for asking me to be here. So let's take some quiet time. So I like to start with our breath. That breath is our connection with oneness because god it's God's breath that breathes through us, into us, and gives us life. So just being aware that we are breathing in God's breath and breathing out God's breath. And then I I guess I'd like for us to um, use our imagination, whether it's visual or just getting a kind of feel for Just being out in a field, a field of, we'll say, red and blue flowers. And just being out in that field of red and blue flowers. And just maybe noticing the breeze of God's breath, letting those flowers just kind of blow in the breeze. And those written blue flowers can look any kind of way. They can be separate, red on one side, blue on the other. They can be intermingled. Whatever, whatever, however they look to you is fine. There's no right way to visualize a field of written blue flowers. And as you look over that field, see if you can notice one flower that may be getting your attention. It could be red, it could be blue, but one, one flower that's getting your attention. And just go and stand next to that flower. And again, you can visualize it or just f- have a body feel and that's what you're doing. And as you stand next to that flower, just breathe in the fragrance of that flower. And as you breathe in the fragrance, also see if you can feel that breeze of God's breath blowing on you and the flower. And maybe notice that the breeze of God's breath blows on all the flowers, no matter what color they are. And so just allow yourself to think of that flower as a symbol of you in the field, that you are one in a field of many. And you are one of many who is blessed by God's breath and breath blessed by God's breeze. And see if you can lean into that connection that you have with all the flowers in that field, the connection you have because all of you are breathed into life by God. And so when God breathes into you, God is also breathing in a part of everybody else in that field. Just rest for a few breaths a few of God's breaths breathing into you, breathing into you the life that is yours and the life that is everybody's in that field. just maybe breathe in three more breaths and then open your eyes if your eyes are closed or just come back to an awareness of the room if your eyes are open.
3: Blessings upon you and your work.
2: Thank you, Gigi.
0: Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.